The reading is from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 35, on page 985. Page 985, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. He cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep that passage of the Bible open to us. Um, This particular time of uh, the year, we're actually going through the central part of Matthew's Gospel. And we, in 14, chapters 14 to 17, we, spent, uh, we saw how Jesus was spending much of his time clarifying his identity and his mission. In other words, answering the question um, that would have come to their minds, seeing him in operation, who he is and what it is he's come to do. In the next three chapters, 18 to 20, Jesus focuses on the nature of the new community explaining its characteristics. And in the first half of chapter 18, last week, we saw 
a number of those characteristics. We saw that instead of who's the greatest, verses 1 to 4, we learnt the importance of humility. Then, instead of leading the people of God astray, verses 5 and 6, we saw the terrifying importance of keeping believers, new believers, on track. Now, Jesus is realistic. He knows this is a fallen world and that we have a fallen nature. Even if it's a redeemed one, it is still subject to temptation. And he used deliberate exaggeration, hyperbole, which is not to be taken literally, and it's used to stress the importance of a believer living a self-controlled life and resisting temptation if heaven, rather than the alternative, is to be our destiny. And then we saw the 100 sheep illustration used in a different way to make a different point. Not the one that we're probably most familiar with, the lost sheep being found and the 99 who didn't need finding. But in Matthew, the one sheep which had gone astray from the flock, who the shepherd went to enormous lengths to bring back into the fold. The former, the one we're more familiar with, the lost sheep is a lost soul. An unbeliever needing to be saved, Luke 15. In the case of the parable last week in Matthew, it was the believing sheep that's gone astray temporarily who the heavenly shepherd does not want to see perish. He wants him back in the fold. So one sheep was an unbeliever, the other one is a believer gone walkabout. This week in 15 to 35, it's all about relationships among the people of God going wrong and how reconciliation and restoration can be re-established. So we have in 15 to 20 a procedure. In 22 to 21, we have a reminder that forgiveness is all about grace and not about legalism. And finally, there's a parable which is unique to Matthew in which he forcibly brings home a very key point, that the fact that we, if we are believers, have been forgiven, then we have so much more to be grateful for and to be forgiven for than what is comparatively um, minor that we are being asked to forgive. So, 18, 15 to 20, which we'll spend most time on. Now, the people of God... The Christian community, the local church, represent Jesus to the world around. We are supposed to provide light in the darkness, saltiness for things which are rotten situations, and a pleasant aroma where things are going badly off. But what if there is darkness in the church, decay amongst the people of God, an awful stench in the Christian community? The church in such cases would not be a true reflection of Christ. It would in fact be a false prospectus for Christianity. It is not a credible witness. It's where the church is not credible that Christian discipline of some kind comes into play. So let's ask this passage a few questions and see how it answers them. Where is the place for discipline? what the purpose of discipline is, who's the person or persons who do the disciplining, and what's the process. Well, church discipline is an area of church life 
which uh, is fraught with danger. Discipline in the church has in church history ranged on a spectrum from the Spanish Inquisition at one end, where because they, they thought that your mortal soul was in danger unless you repented and embraced the Catholic faith, then uh, you were doomed. They got into their head, it was quite justified to sort of put you on the rack to get you to confess so that you would repent. That's a bit warped thinking, but that's what they did. At the other end, that we're probably more familiar with, there is a complete laissez-faire attitude. Just about anything goes. And uh, you can have a situation where Christian vocabulary may be in use, but the words don't mean the same as the words in the Bible and are twisted to justify beliefs and behaviour at variance with the clear teaching of Scripture. J.C. Ryle was the first Bishop of Liverpool, and he has a lot of wisdom, born of experience, no doubt, about discipline in the church. He says the whole subject is surrounded with difficulties. Churches have made so many mistakes. Sometimes, he says, on the side of uh, sleepy remiss, and sometimes on the side of blind severity. Nonetheless, he writes, church discipline, according to the mind of Christ, when wisely exercised, is calculated to promote a church's health and well-being. And where he's particularly insightful, he points out spiritual penalties are the only penalties that Christ permits the church to inflict. So if someone commits a criminal offence, then it's down to the police and the criminal justice system to deal with. Because we as Christians are citizens of the state. Read Romans 13, 1 to 4, to back all that thinking up. So the church should not attempt to run an alternative legal system. If the matter is criminal, it should be dealt with by the criminal justice system. If it's civil, then it's done by the civil courts. Now, if we had a church member who was a dentist, and we don't, which is why I'm using that profession, and uh, he or she got high on some anaesthetics that uh, they could easily have in their possession, and he had um, used them, and then he pulled out half your teeth, that's a criminal offence. If he got distracted on another occasion when you went in and uh, he picked up the wrong notes and he saw his notes said, oh, extract two teeth, and he extracted two of yours when it should have been somebody else's, well, that is a civil matter. The church has neither the authority nor the expertise to deal with either. Ryle reminds us that the church has no temporal punishments or civil liabilities that it can inflict, only spiritual penalties. Now, it's not the case that we are dealing with minor matters because some behaviour might be regarded as legal, but Christians would regard it as unchristian or even immoral 
not the kind of behaviour that one might expect from a follower of Jesus Christ. And if it falls into that category, a category that brings disrespect to Christ, what should the church do about it? Well, the first question. Where should such discipline take place? Well, it seems the context here is the local church. You see, involvement in church membership is a two-way accountability, a covenant of mutual commitment and support. And should it arise, the need to address any gap between a person's public profession well, and their public life lived out may well be necessary. It might be necessary for the individual's walk with God And it may well be necessary for the credibility of the church. Second, the purpose of discipline is always restorative. Verse 15, if he listens, you have gained your brother. The word gained could also be translated convicted. Not by passing judgment, but by the Holy Spirit convicting the person of their sin. Their life doesn't match up to what's expected as described in scripture. The aim is not to score points over him, but to win him over, because all discipline must begin with restoration in mind. And thirdly, who is the person or persons who do the discipline? Is it the rector, the PCC, the church wardens, the bishop or the archdeacon on certain occasions? Or, and I won't even be tempted to go there, There is a whole ecclesiastical legal system. So measures through general synod become acts of parliament. Fortunately, the laity don't have to obey them, but the clergy do. They're mostly concerned with what you can and can't have in a churchyard, which is why we don't have black marble stones, etc. It's thrilling stuff. Um, But, um, yeah, there is that, just so that you knew I was aware of it. Um, So, but... um, Who's the person? Well, it isn't necessarily those I've just read out. It's actually you, which might come as a shock. In some ways, I hope it is a shock to you. Otherwise, you might be rather the kind of person who looks around to try and find faults and who you can tick off and moan about whenever you encounter them. But the you in verse 15 is singular. You, the church member. And go is a present imperative, meaning it's an instruction to do something. It is a command. Well, I thought I'd find out what... um, I knew there was certainly... There were probably a number of Christians who are judges. One is also a lay reader of All Souls, Langham Place, and a diocesan chancellor. His honour, Judge David Turner, QC. And... uh, He is both a Christian and a judge, and he suggests that this whole area needs to be exercised with great wisdom if we're to avoid the mistakes of Christian church history. First of all, he suggests that we don't call out every sin against us, or we will create a culture of misery. Secondly, he says we're to distinguish between the sins that we do expect and all of us at some time or other fall into, distinguish between those 
and the ones that we don't expect from a Christian, ones which might cast doubt upon the genuineness of that person's profession of faith. And thirdly, we have different timescales in terms of expectations as to amendment of life. So a serial alcoholic might take longer than a serial adulterer to change. So it may well be right to have a private word with someone who is out of order. You may be helping them to get back on track. Now, I don't imagine this operates. You just pick on somebody who you don't even know. That would be absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this is easy to think of the most bizarre nonsense that could happen. But if there's somebody who you've known for quite a long time and perhaps they're in your house group, perhaps you go on a walk with them, and you just notice something that really is quite adrift and normally out of character, then think about it, pray about it. It might be you that the one who needs to say something, and you may have done a great deal of good. You see, because if they listen, then you have uh, helped them get back on track. But if they don't listen and are unrepentant, then if the sin is serious, then it may well be that things have to escalate and become more public. So the place for this is the local church. The purpose of it is restoration. And the persons are you and me. So what's the process? Well, step one has been this private one-to-one conversation. Not to pontificate, nor to scold, certainly not with any self-righteousness, And after a pretty good time of praying and sober self-assessment oneself, we do take a deep breath and we do gently say something and explore what might be happening. It might be that if you were a member of our Connect group in the 20s and 30s and someone humiliates you in front of others, or it might be that you have to gently question the wisdom of a Christian friend who started dating a non-Christian or that things may have gone much further and they're sleeping together. You have a word. They come to their senses. It all ends there. Great. But what if it doesn't? Well, step two take another brother or a couple of brothers or sisters, whichever, um, to also talk with that person. And, of course, having them uh, adds a bit of gravity and weight to the situation. It also means that they, these other two, can listen. They can establish the facts. They may think that you have been rather overzealous and that you're making an absolute mountain out of a molehill for this person. Or it may be that you were right. And these two provide that extra bit of emphasis on the erring brother. Remember, you love them and you want the best for them. But if there's still no joy, and joy is what comes from repentance, then step three, tell it to the church. Now, what this usually means is some form of church leadership. Although I have heard of churches 
albeit smaller ones, where they convene the entire membership and basically it turns into a kind of amateur court, which can only be disastrous, probably. So if, for example, in the Connect case, it would be the Connect leadership. It could also end up being the rector and the church wardens. Again, with the desire that sin might be recognised and repented of and restoration be the outcome. It might take a bit of time to see the fruits of repentance, but restoration is the aim. Now, I wouldn't want to... I think that the different stages will have many more incidences, and most things happen, I think, on stage one and two in Jesus' progression. Though very occasionally it does get to kind of three, and, uh, but I would think no more than... Well, no more than 20 occasions in my 30-odd years' experience. Um, And step four is rare because people have usually excluded themselves if they have done something quite obviously at variance from a professing Christian faith. But there are warnings in Scripture about one's worthiness to partake in Holy Communion, for example. And on a number of occasions over the years, I have suggested that in the circumstances that they, those involved voluntarily abstain from taking part in Holy Communion. And nine times out of ten, they agree. And they partake again when they are in a position to do so. Occasionally they don't and leave. J.C. Ryle's wisdom again. It can never be right that all sorts of people, however wicked and ungodly, should be allowed to come to the table of the Lord. It is the bounden duty of every Christian to use his influence to prevent such a state of things. He is realistic, though. A perfect communion can never be attained in this world, but purity should be the mark at which we aim. And his honour, Judge Turner said, the credibility of the church is at risk. We invite such people to meals, but not the Holy Communion meal. To a service at church, but not to serve in church. And Ryle again, an increasingly high standard of qualification for full church membership is one of the best evidences of a prosperous church Now, by prosperous, he doesn't mean wealthy. What he does mean is healthy, that the church is functioning as Christ um, intended it to, that people's lives are changing for the good, and they provide a good prospectus, a good advertisement for Christ. So the local church, while it can't make people believers, does have the authority to say who is in and who is out. We cannot see hearts, but we can see actions. And whilst enormous care and uh, sensitivity is needed, and mistakes can too easily be made, but this is what Christ himself directs for the credible witness of the church and in the hope that any wayward would return. Then we have Peter's question. How many times should we forgive someone Verse 21 and 22. Now, I think Peter here, who uh, is depicted always with warts and all, 
thinks he is making a good estimate when he says seven times. That's the number of times he thinks you should be prepared to forgive someone. But there were, because the rabbis said only three. If people you know, crossed you, did something wrong to you, three times you have to forgive them. On the fourth time, you don't. And doubtless Peter thought that seven times and on the eighth time you didn't have to was a great enhancement on what the rabbis were saying. But Jesus, by saying not seven times but 70 times seven, he's not setting an upper limit for the number of times one must be prepared to forgive. Forgiveness is not limited by either frequency or quantity, but as the next parable flags up, by realizing that we have been forgiven far more than we are being asked to forgive. And that's where we come to the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is only in Matthew's Gospel. So let's get the storyline straight. The king decides to settle his accounts. He calls in all those who owe him money. And the first man who comes in to see him owes him 10,000 talents, which was a monetary unit in the New Testament times. One talent was 6,000 drachma. One drachma is a day's rate for a labourer. That is 20 years' worth of pay. Given the fact that if he's talking to people who are in their 20s, 30s and 40s, they're not going to live another 20 years. In other words, the whole thing is impossible for them. But just think about your own pay. What's your pay a year? Multiply it by 20, you end up with a lot of money. If you're on average earnings, it's three quarters of a million pounds. So whatever the amount, it's meant to be impossible to pay. So he and his family are to be sold as slaves to cover a trivial amount of uh, the massive debt. And the man falls on his knees and begs for more time to pay. Now the king does even more than he asked for. The king is prepared to forgive him. That's the word used, forgive him his debts. Well, what a relief for him. I bet if somebody paid, if you managed, I don't know how, but if you managed to clock up a three quarters of a million pound debt and somebody says... I'll pay it off for you. You would be in a good mood. You'd even be in a generous mood, I suspect, to other people. But this guy was not. One of his peers, a fellow servant, we'll call him servant number two so we don't get lost, owed him, that's servant number one, 100 denarii, which is three months' pay. So number one, has just been forgiven three quarters of a million quid, which is 20 years' pay, and his workmate number two owes him three months' pay. On average earnings, that's about £9,000. Does number one respond how he himself has been treated? Well, not a bit of it. He tries to throttle number two servant and demands payment there and then. And servant number two begs for more time, just as servant number one had begged to the king. But number one refuses number two, and he slings him in jail, until, he says, 
he can pay his debt. Now, meanwhile, the other servants get to hear, and they tell the king. And the king summons the first servant. And the king says, in effect, I, forgive your, I forgave your whacking great debt. The least you could have done would have been to let this guy off what amounts to a 0.0125% of what I've just let you off. But what the Bible actually says is, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Well, he should have, shouldn't he? Because he didn't, he gets a dose of his own treatment. He is sent to prison to be tortured until the debt is paid off, which, of course, he'll never be able to do. Now, the parable is obviously set in a foreign country because Jews were not allowed either to sell one another into slavery nor torture a fellow Jew. But there is a contrast there, isn't there? When you, when you relate that back to uh, the Heavenly Father who's behind it all. On the one hand, he's incredibly compassionate. On the other hand, he is ruthlessly just. John Carson is helpful on how to reconcile those two characteristics. He says, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it's precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy, Carson says, that he cannot possibly accept as his those devoid of compassion and mercy. Now this is not to say that the king's compassion can be earned, far from it. The servant is granted freedom only by virtue of the king's forgiveness. Those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. C.S. Lewis in uh, a part of uh, his book, Mere Christianity, wrote on forgiveness. He says, I'm not trying to tell you what I can do. I can do precious little. I am telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There is not the slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. What are we to do, he says. You see, only if we've really turned to God in real repentance will we have been forgiven. And... Only if we've been forgiven from the heart of God will we be able to forgive others from our heart. During the Second World War, a lady who has subsequently become well-known, Corrie Ten Boom, that she, together with her Christian family, concealed many Jews in their home in Holland, hiding those people from Hitler's Nazis. 
After a time, they were all discovered by the Nazis and they were put into Ravensbrück concentration camp. During their camp imprisonment, they suffered terribly at the hands of the guards. Her sister died there. After the war had finished, she found herself one day speaking in 1947 in Munich. She was speaking at a Christian gathering. And there in the uh, congregation was one of the guards who she recognised. And uh, he had, unbeknown to her, become a Christian in the intervening period. And after you know, the proceedings were over, this man went up to her and introduced himself and said who he was. And then he stretched out his hand asking her to forgive him. But she felt that she could not take his hand. She knew that she ought to do so, because the Lord says, if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you the wrongs you have done. And she prayed in an instant to the Lord, seeking his help, And she raised her arm mechanically, placed her hand into the hand of this former concentration camp guard. And as she did so, she writes that she found, felt a current travel through her body, commencing at her shoulder, passing through her arm, and reaching into the clasped hand. And she said... I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. Let's pray. Now, I wonder, as we uh, have a moment of pause and reflection, whether there might be two types of person here today listening to this explanation of Jesus and this example of this lady, Corrie Ten Boom, who did wrestle with what she did. She, she knew what was right intellectually. She battled with her will volitionally and she acted. And then gradually, not only on that occasion, but afterwards she wrestled with it and came to that point of peace and knowing that she'd done the right thing. Well, there's one kind of person who feels the convicting hand of God on them for what they are doing wrong and they realise again that they need to confess their sins and amend their ways. And there's another type, a professing Christian who knows something of God's forgiveness, but like Corrie ten Boom, did find it so hard to forgive. Well, we know what we should do. We battle with our will, and we have to act on that. And the appropriate feelings will follow. Heavenly Father, help us to put into practice the clear things Jesus taught us about forgiveness, whether for our own sin against you or our difficulty in forgiving others. Amen.